This is a podcast from the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Here at SEAS, we love science. We're a science school, but we get it. Science can be scary and intimidating. We think that because we don't understand the words being used, that we're not smart enough to understand it. Well, frankly, that's bull. Scientific language, like any other, can be translated. You just need a translator. Hi, I'm Leah Burrows, science communicator here at SEAS, and I'll be your translator. So each episode, I'm going to sit down with one of our researchers, and we're going to talk about a recent paper, and we're going to break down the most egregious perpetrator of jargon warfare in all of science, the title of a scientific paper. Because if you can understand the title of a paper, the whole thing stops being scary and starts being cool and exciting, all of the things that we love about science. So let's give it a shot. And thanks for listening. I'm here with John Abel, a third-year graduate student in Frank Doyle's lab. You just published a paper Mm -hmm. recently in PNAS, and the title of this paper is Functional Network Inference of the Suprachismatic Nucleus. Did I pronounce that right? that is correct. Okay. As paper titles go, not super scary, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but let's break it down. What does it mean? Sure. So I'll actually approach this kind of from the back end of the title. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is a small part of the hypothalamus in the brain, and it's what's considered the circadian master clock. It receives light input from the eyes and sets kind of the circadian phase of the rest of the body. So you have clocks in your liver and in your muscles, which are primed for either sleeping or feeding fasting behavior. And the suprachiasmatic nucleus kind of tells it when it should be expecting these kind of behaviors. So we know what this thing does in the body, but you guys were trying to figure out how the neurons are connected to each other in this network, right? Right. So that's the functional network part of this. So what a functional network means is that we found neurons that behave similarly under certain conditions. The way that I often think of this is... If we're trying to figure out which people are talking to each other, but you can't actually monitor their text message communication, one way that you can see if people are talking or not is who behaves similarly. So if you tell your friends, meet me for dinner at 6, and all of a sudden all of these people show up together at 6, but you can't read those text messages, maybe you'll assume that those people are communicating anyway because they knew where to be at the right time. Maybe those people aren't actually communicating and they just randomly showed up in the same place at 6. But that's the general idea of what a functional network is. It's, it's identifying connections by similar behavior rather than necessarily seeing the actual communication. A big reason this is important is because there's a lot of diseases that impact this part of the brain, right? Right. And, and so because it's this underlying rhythm that affects pretty much everything, many diseases have circadian components. Within our lab, the other two main projects are studies of post-traumatic stress disorder and diabetes, and these have fairly clear circadian components where uh, your insulin sensitivity differs quite a bit between day and night, and for specifically veterans who have PTSD, sleep is often a time associated with having hyperarousal or flashbacks, and your sleep is generally poorly regulated. So the circadian system ties into quite a few other bodily functions that are interesting for various reasons, disease being one of them. So these neurons are talking all of the time. How do you cut through that noise to figure out which neurons are actually part of this functional network? So the way that we address this is to add this 
a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, which is commonly found in puffer fish, and that cuts off the intercellular communication channels. And then because the cells individually are imprecise, this results in the entire population becoming desynchronized over a period of time. And then once you wash that neurotoxin back out, you can watch the cells resynchronize and use different techniques to identify which ones are more heavily synchronized with each other. How do you figure that out? So we applied a statistic called the maximal information coefficient, which is actually only a few years old. It's from information theory, and the general idea of it is that cells which communicate should share information with each other, and the cells that share a high degree of information that corresponds to them cycling together and returning to having this kind of synchronous cycling rapidly and then maintaining it very stably throughout the rest of this experiment. So the cells which did that, we labeled connected. The cells which did not do that over some threshold, we labeled unconnected. It's almost a sloppy first attempt at doing this, as most things in science are for the first time. So that's what you mean by inference in the title? Yes, that is the inference. So that means sloppy (laughs) guess? Yes, yeah. it it can refer to varying precision, but yeah, in this case, it's uh, it's sloppy, but it's also an important part of the work to to recognize where your uncertainty is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we understand the title of the paper, what did you guys actually find out? It's fairly well understood that there's a core and shell structure where the cores of these suprachiasmatic nuclei express different neuropeptides and have a different phase angle with the rest of them. They cycle at a slightly different time. And it's thought that there's different communication between these regions. And one of the things that we assumed going into this is that each region itself was connected within itself. So the core was tightly connected within the core. Maybe the shell is also tightly connected within the shell, but we didn't ultimately see that. Instead, we saw that the core was tightly connected, but the shell actually was really just reacting to the core rather than having tight connections within it itself. That was perhaps the biggest surprise that instead of two clusters, there was really only one cluster that we identified. And it's also interesting, too, because it all resynchronized without any outside stimuli, right? Right. For example, if you're jet lagged, you're receiving a synchronizing stimuli, meaning you're receiving light earlier or later every day, and that allows your cells to reset. In this case, it was entirely just connections within the network. There was nothing externally forcing these cells to resynchronize, and they do it naturally. Well, John, thank you so much for explaining your paper to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. This is a podcast from the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences.